few years ago, I lost the majority of my vision to a mitochondrial disease. However, that didn't prevent me from continuing to ski in the backcountry, you know, learning to feel the uphill edge of the skin track with the outside edge of my uphill ski. The steps we go through to produce the forecast are the same for me as they would be for any other forecaster. The only difference is the way in which I interpret the data used. This is Tyson Reddy, and you are listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. You're tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your guest host for this week, Don Baker from Nelson, BC. A big thanks to Caleb for having me back for another season. I've got some exciting conversations lined up for this year, and I look forward to sharing them. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control. Safety through innovation. Additional support is provided by 10 Barrel Brewing. Drink beer outside. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people with a curious fascination for avalanches. Well, it's late November, and here in the West Kootenays of southern BC, it is low tide in the mountains. Conditions in these parts are quite variable, with thin coverage in most locations. Looking at the forecast, we're expecting a little bit of snow just in time for the release of this episode. Not enough to rescue the ski in yet, but winter is on its way. The current variable surface consists of massive surface hoar, surface facets, a rain crust, and old wind effect depending on your location. This is going to be a tricky layer once it gets buried, and one we will likely watch for most of December. On that note, avalanche forecasts are live for the winter for the National Parks of Canada with forecasts starting on Friday the 25th of November for the rest of BC and Alberta. As always, avalanche.ca is your best bet for up-to-date conditions and avalanche hazard forecasts for the mountainous regions of Canada. Speaking of Avalanche Canada, we have a pre-season update from them coming right up. I'm joined once again by Grant Helgeson. Grant is the newly minted product manager for Avalanche Canada. He provides us with an update to the significant changes that have been made to avalanche.ca over this past summer. Coming up after Grant and the Avalanche Canada news, we'll hear my conversation with Tyson Reddy. Tyson is an incredible guy and a real inspiration. He's an avalanche forecaster with Avalanche Canada and a ski guide. These would be accomplishments to be proud of on their own, but what is incredible is that Tyson is legally blind. He shares the story of losing his sight, relearning to ski, travel, and work in the mountains again, and then going on to start the Braille Mountain Initiative. This initiative aims to get visually impaired people into the mountains and teach them avalanche safety and mountain travel skills. They have certified the first visually impaired AST-1 students. It's an incredible accomplishment, and I look forward to sharing Tyson's story with you all. Well, without any further ado, here's Grant Helgeson and the Avalanche Canada News, followed by the inspiring story of Tyson Reddy. Enjoy. Hey there, I'd like to welcome Grant Helgeson back to the Avalanche Hour podcast for the third time here. Grant, buddy, it's a pleasure to have you back. Oh, so psyched to be here with you, Dom. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet, man. We're here for the Avalanche Canada preseason update. It's November 18th, and there's a little bit of snow on the ground, but not a whole lot. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. You know, we've got, we've launched our forecast next Friday. So they'll be launching just when this podcast comes out. 
And with my new role as product manager, there are just so many small details to execute on before those forecasts go out the door, but we're having a good time. We just wrapped up forecaster training and uh, got a strong team in place. We have almost 40 people involved in the pause, the public avalanche warning service group now. Pretty cool to see. And it's just an exciting time as it always is this time of year. Right on. That's awesome. And you guys got some exciting news here. I understand that um, you've got a brand new website. I've had a chance to have a look at it. It looks really good. I was wondering if you could tell us about some of the changes that you've made to the avalanche.ca website. Yeah. So what's happened at avalanche.ca is those of our near and dear readers, the people who have been with us for a long time, will know that we had all these avalanche forecasting regions. And in fact, we had 16 different forecasting regions. Now, these were fixed, and I honestly don't even know who put them in place originally, but probably folks at the CAA, you know, 25 years ago. And you would see those old boundaries. They would follow river bottoms in some places, mountain ranges in others. Um, they followed a lot of highways, but they were fixed for really no significant reason. And what would happen to us all the time is that we would get into these situations where, you know, one side of a forecast region would, would be doing one thing and the other side would be doing something quite different. The classic example is the South Coast Inland, where the weather on the Coquihalla and the snowpack for that matter is just so much different than the Duffy. But that was all contained in one region. And so it was such a huge challenge to the forecaster to kind of pick the point they were gonna to write to. You might say like, okay, I'm gonna write the forecast based on what's happening in the Coke, but then I'll make all these asterisks throughout my forecast saying like, Oh, but if you're skiing in the Duffy, then you have to look, look out for this. And then you start getting into these interesting problems where it's like, well, what should the danger rating be? Because it's considerable in the South, but it's moderate in the North. And it was always so challenging. We said like, wouldn't it be sweet if you could actually match the forecast region to the conditions? And that's what you see now at avalanche.ca. This is the launch of the flexible forecast regions. Uh, I can speak that a little bit more to Colorado's on board with us with that as well. But now, if you split them apart, we actually have 92 different forecast regions in the province. So the whole idea is to account for that spatial variability that we're all dealing with when we're out in the mountain snowpack. Totally. Yeah. And you know, like whenever we work with a conceptual model, which this is a podcast for all of us practitioners for the most part, I know there's lots of people around, but like the, the conceptual model for avalanche forecasting really states that first we have to define the area that we're forecasting for. And so this really allows us to start on a different foot. We can say like, I am forecasting for the Northwest part of this range. You know, I'm, for, I'm forecasting for the maritime parts of the South coast. And then you are, you can actually create a much different product. It's, it's pretty cool. That's awesome. That sounds like something that maybe wasn't technically as feasible in the past, but now as technology has increased, um, you're able to have that flexibility. Would you say that's fair? Oh, 100%. And it's, you know, it's amazing. We have a team of four different full stack web developers that are just absolutely incredible people that we work with. And we've never had that kind of horsepower developmentally before. And to be honest, I don't know that any avalanche center in the world has that. In fact, the more I think about it, I'm certain that no one does because I was happened to be, I was in Davos representing the North American uh, forecasting offices in june and we were speaking about this like you look at what what's happening with avalanche report like they have a they have an amazing kind of forecaster um developer that works on that stuff and you look at the slf but even those folks don't have the same kind of like people with the amount of context that are deeply embedded in this thing and can actually produce as much as we can so we're in a really special place with that right now yeah we're definitely lucky that it's so concentrated in such a small area here for 
uh, avalanche activity and mountain users and uh, commercial operators in the backcountry as well. I think it helps to uh, provide the seed for all of that ac action there. 100%. And you know, the funding that has been chipped in from at the federal level, at the provincial level, from all of our corporate sponsors, like that's really what makes this happen. And we're just, we're in a place now where we can really plan for the long haul. Like we have a, you know, a 15 year working plan and we're not in that place any longer where we need to have a bake sale to, you know, get another forecaster day, which was very much the case actually when I started here. Yeah. So it's really cool to see the evolution and to see what we can build now. And it's, there's a lot of potential here. We can talk about it a little bit more too, like what that means operationally. Oh, that's awesome, man. Thank goodness for that, that we're not quite selling muffins anymore to uh, fundraise for, <laughs> for Avalanche Bulletins. You have been with the Avalanche Canada for a while. This uh, We had a chat with you a couple of years ago, a bit more in depth. Um, so you've got a new role. Do you mind telling us about that a little bit? Yeah. So I've gone, let's see, I've been here since 2011, started in Utah in 2006, somewhere in there. Um, and then kind of moved through the ranks here from new guy in the block to forecaster to senior forecaster and then kind of senior forecaster and project manager. And for the last really five years, I've been working really closely with Carl Clausen, who is really a legend in our industry, like full mountain guide, someone who's worked a ton around the world, setting up avalanche curriculum, setting up avalanche forecasting centers. And for the last five years, since we've, we've been working on the AVID project, um, with a little bit of perspective, we can actually see that I was really working as the project manager, whereas Carl was really inhabiting that that area of the product owner. So it was really his vision that got us to this point. You know, he he would come up with the ideas, he would draft them out, he would go and and shop around for the funding, um, and then I was kind of the guy in the background, like making the details happen, making sure that we kind of had the developers in the right place, the proof of concepts happening, and Carl, I guess, didn't want to work forever. Uh, but he made it pretty late into his career. He's in his 60s, and he's actually still helping us out a little bit too. But he retired in June, and so his role split. So he went from – essentially, he was our operations manager. The operations side went to James Floyer, who's now our program manager. And then all the development and tasking there went to me. So I'm now the product manager here at Avalanche Canada. And so that James, myself, and Gilles make up the um, strategic management group, and it means that we get to take – all this development horsepower that we have and create cutting edge snow and avalanche forecasting products. It's pretty sweet. That is pretty sweet. And as you said, uh, avalanche Canada's, uh, program avid is now being used by the Colorado avalanche information center. How cool is that? Yeah, it's so cool. And in fact, um, Ethan Coop, Brian, and all those guys, Jake, um, they actually developed Avid with us dollar for dollar. So it was actually a co-development project where they came in and saw they're facing some of the same challenges that we are. Um, Colorado's obviously got a ton of mountain users. There's a ton of people living in very close proximity to the mountains. And they've just got their, the Colorado Avalanche Information Center is just, they, they're really innovative thinkers. And to be totally honest, it was a big part of their idea because what they would do is in the spring, they would actually issue like a single forecast for the whole state as they kind of wrapped up. And then in, when they started getting into the fall, they would issue another forecast for the whole state. And then as the conditions started to change, they would start to write different products. So they would kind of break it down from one to then three products and then into the myriad of their um, usual regions. But it was really, I think they, I, the credit really goes to Ethan Green for kind of having this vision about what people needed from us in the avalanche forecasting realm. And I can, I'll step into this just a little bit. 
when you go to visit your, just even to get your basic forecast from Environment Canada, you don't have to know that you're in the Spilla machine or South Okanagan. You can just type in your city and boom, there's your weather forecast. And what we've done in avalanche forecasting is we've actually trained people that they need to know the region that they are going to play in. And it's kind of a, it's kind of an esoteric bit of knowledge when you really think about it. Yeah, it's a like, good point. what other context do you have to do that in, you know? Makes it more difficult for like entry want... level users for sure. Oh, it totally does because it's like, it's something that we created that then we kind of force people to learn how to do. And to be fair, we know that our users were often very, uh, it's a point of pride to say like, oh, I'm going to North Columbia. This is my zone. This is my forecast. But we realized that we can actually step away from that because what people actually want these days, and we're all so used to working with it because of products like Google Maps, is they want geospatial information. Folks want to be able to go to a map, zoom in, look at where they're going, and get the appropriate information for that place. And so that's what we have now at Avalanche Canada. You can actually, when you visit the map for the first time, you're going to see um, the regions, as we're still calling them. They might be very big. They might be very small. You can zoom in, you can click on it, you can get your avalanche forecast. Or let's say you're not that familiar with the zone. Maybe you live um, somewhere else and you're coming to the mountains to visit and you think like, okay, you know what? I am going to um, be skiing in the Revelstoke area. So show me the gold range. And you can actually type in the gold range or you can type in um, Mount McPherson. It'll actually drill you all the way down, show you the train that you're gonna be in and then give you the avalanche forecast product there. And along with that, you might also see the weather station that happens to be closest to you. You're going to see some relevant MIN or Mountain Information Network, little dots on that map from other recreationists that have been there interacting in that terrain for some more information. And so we're really taking that idea of like taking, removing the, the barriers to entry, letting people see everything in a map-based system, and then they can zoom in and get whatever kind of information they want from us because there's so much out there. And I think long-term you're gonna see just better and better trip planning tools come out from us. And this is really just the start of that. That's pretty awesome. And you, you'll still be able to access some of the uh, eights ratings for these areas as well, eh? So it's actually quite a powerful combination of information that's available between weather stations, current conditions through mountain information network reports, eights ratings, and uh, the actual forecast or produced danger rating for the area. Yeah, exactly. You can go like see the eights rating for a managed area. You can click through that to get your trip planner and see how the avalanche forecast is interacting with the particular trip you want to do. So yeah, we're pretty proud of it. So Colorado's on board. They actually started using it because they got more snow than we do. Um, they actually have 103 different individual forecast areas that they can then group like with like and create as many forecast products as they want. You know, the, the first look at this thing, like the first reaction for people is always like, whoa, wow, like how are you guys going to produce 92 different forecasts? And we're probably never going to do that. I mean, maybe someday when you start getting into computer generated forecasts, but the, you know, the, the Swiss were instrumental in this as well. Like when you look at what happens with the SLF and you look at their map, yes, they always ha they have hundreds of forecast areas, but they group them all together and produce a single forecast for a conglomerate of areas. So that's really where we're at now. You know, if if we've got a, an area like it might be that all the interior um, is more or less good to go, but maybe we have a, a small little persistent weakness, let's say in Kootenai Pass in your background, in your backyard. Well, then we can actually take our forecast, just break Kootenai Pass and the surrounding part of the coots out of it and produce a special product just for that area. And so instead of having to go out there and do 
um, the due diligence on 16 different areas just for the sake of doing it, we can look at the picture as a whole and then drill down like, what products do we need here? Well, most of it can be covered by a pretty generic product, but there's three places in here that have pretty special conditions. And now the forecaster can actually go deep on those places for the day. So we're actually starting to get to a point where we're kind of matching um, the forecast expertise with the places of greatest need. It's it's a it's a whole new era. That's awesome. I, I look forward to talking to you this time next year to uh, get the feedback on how it all <laughs> went for you guys. I, I know forecasts are going live next week, I believe, right? That's right. Yeah, Parks Canada has forecasts out now, and it's working uh, super well. Colorado has forecasts live. K Country does. Um, but our forecast will be starting up next Friday. Next Friday at this time, I should be cracking a beer and hopefully high-fiving because it's all working great. Oh, that's awesome. Fingers well, crossed. Sounds like you'll deserve that beer for sure. <laughs> awesome. Well, I, I wanted to ask you a couple more things here, Grant, uh, as well as public outreach and communications company. You guys do a lot of education. So uh, webinars are back for this year. Is that right? Yeah, webinars are back for this year. And we're so stoked. Like that was... It was one of the good things that came out of the pandemic. You know, we've always been heavily focused on outreach and we've always loved reaching out and sending our forecasters into the field uh, to go on these kind of talking road shows. And I did that for years and just so loved it. But then all of a sudden it was like, okay, we can't go drive around and talk to big groups of people. What do we do? And it really is amazing what, like what Nancy and Brent and everyone else who's been involved with the webinar series has done. But that is our principal means of outreach now. So yeah, we're still gonna do in-person outreach. But if you go to avalanche.ca, click on the um, learn tab, you'll get into the webinars. And we've got like uh, near weekly webinars that range from um, choosing train for snowmobilers. We've already done a few, of course, like Jen Coulter just did one. We're gonna do off the line, which is one of uh, my favorite presentations. There's, there's been some uh, webinars that have been recorded for ice climbers. Like there's so much there. And if you wanna go back and look at some of the ones from the last two years, like those are all there too. So there's been some some real fantastic high production value webinars there that can just be really fun as we start to you know dust off um, the dust off the skis like change the chain case oil in the sleds like as we start to get ready for it you can kind of get in there like brew up a, a coffee or crack a beer and start to look at some of these great webinars start to get our avalanche eyeballs and minds tuned up so yeah definitely check those out oh that's great I think uh, it's fair to say that professionals drill a bunch of practice every fall and uh, have an annual continuing professional development requirement. And I, I believe strongly that it should be no different for recreationalists or any other type of user of the backcountry. You know, they're perishable skills. If you don't use them, you lose them. And there's always more stuff to learn. So that is a fantastic resource and one that I've enjoyed myself for sure. Um, yeah, in, very well said. In terms of uh, other Avalanche Canada resources, I think Avi Savvy is another really good uh, learning opportunity. If you wouldn't mind just reminding us a little bit about that. Yeah, Avi Savvy is great. It's a full-on interactive site where you really get kind of walked through the basics of what it takes to recreate an avalanche train safely. And if it's been a while since your first um, avalanche skills training course, like that's a great place to go and just dust off the skills. Um, or if, if you're just curious, if you haven't actually gotten into an AST course yet, it's not a substitute, but it's a great first place to start. And I think that now, like before people actually get into an AST, like come to Avi Savvy, get into it. Like there's interactive maps and exercises. It's super cool and just a great place for anyone, especially people that are kind of in that, you know, getting into it or have only taken an AST one and been touring for a couple of years. Like that's your place. Come back to that and get in, brush off the skills there. And then you can get into the longer form, uh, in-depth learning that the webinars are. That's awesome. We all waste a lot of time on the screen these days. Might as well uh, waste it wisely. 
bit of, with a bit <laughs> of learning. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so we, we often think about backcountry users as skiers and snowboarders. You guys have done an awesome job of incorporating sledders as well. I think it's a huge proportion of our um, backcountry user group. Uh, ice climbers mm-hmm. are another area that you guys have uh, focused quite a bit. I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about the ice climbing atlas that has come out recently. Yeah, the Ice Climbing Atlas is super cool. And that's really the brainchild of Grant Statham and Sarah Hunikin. Um, and what they've gone, what they've done is actually gone through and rated the terrain for ice climbers. So we're not trying to like apply what it takes to be a skier in those places or to kind of bastardize a forecast in there. It's a, it's a tool for ice climbers by ice climbers. And if you go to the website, you'll actually see the annotated photos of like what the typical avalanche path is through there, what kind of conditions lead up to that, um, that path being a problem. And it's, it's just so cool to see all the world-class climbs listed out there with this information that previously wasn't widely available. And, you know, it comes for people who climb ice, it makes sense, but like those, it doesn't necessarily make sense to everyone else. Like a lot of those uh, ice climbs are actually in, I mean, in avalanche train, like they are the avalanche path. And there's been, you know, so many accidents over the years of kind of people being in them in the wrong, right place, wrong time, um, or wrong time, wrong time, something like that. But what it, ice climbing is just really complicated because you can be in the middle of the climb in the shade shivering and not realize the slope above you is heating up. So, true. so I think that having a, sp- yeah, it, it's just, Ice climbing is hardcore, man. I did a little bit of it for a couple of years and just like, I have so much respect for it. Um, you got to love a bit of suffering for sure. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a masochistic pursuit, but like when, I mean, when it's plastic ice in my, oh, for me, when it's plasticky and easy one swing sticks, it's just, it's a lot of fun. That being said, I haven't done it in years, but it's really important for us to recognize that, that ice climbing community out there. And I'm really psyched to partner with, um, Grant and Sarah to produce this amazing product for ice climbers. Very cool. Yeah, it's a different perspective when you think about uh, a lot of backcountry users are triggering the avalanches themselves, statistically speaking. Um, whereas ice climbers, a lot of the time, it's overhead hazards. So it's just taking a, a different view of the same avalanche problem. Totally. Awesome. Well, right on. Uh, anything else you wanted to touch on here, Grant, before we let you go? Thanks a lot for you know, taking that time to chat with me. Yeah, my pleasure, Dom. I'm always psyched to jump on with you. It's, um, I, you know, I spend a lot of time driving at different times in, in my career and places. And it's, I love putting the avalanche hour on and just like hearing these stories that just seem to come to life. Um, one thing I'm doing a bunch of right now is working with Grant Statham pretty hand in hand. And just like when you listen to that guy's avalanche hour podcast, you're like, wow, this is amazing. And I think that what the avalanche hour does is really humanizes some of these legends in our business. And it's kind of, it helps a lot with that sense of community and the mentorship that happens out there. It kind of makes it available to the masses. So, so psyched to talk to you. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, you bet, man. Well, hopefully we can keep this going on an annual basis. It's great to get an update on what's going on. Um, So people can find out more avalanche.ca, sign up for the monthly newsletter, The Aspect. Anywhere else we can find you? Social media, I assume. Yeah, of course. All the social media channels. Uh, We're actually big on TikTok, believe it or not. Uh, thanks to people like Jennifer Coulter and Sarah Taylor. Yeah. Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, all the things we're out there. Look us up, follow us right on. Well, everybody have a good safe season out there and, uh, we'll hope to catch up with you soon, buddy. Sounds good. Thanks, Tom. You bet. Well, thank you, Grant, for that Avalanche Canada update. Coming up next is Tyson Reddy of the Braille Mountain Initiative. Uh, I'm pleased today to welcome Tyson Reddy to the podcast. Tyson, welcome. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having me. 
Oh, it's good to have you here. Um, I've been very interested to talk to you for quite a while now. A mutual friend of ours, Wendy Lewis from Avalanche Canada, recommended uh, that I speak with you. And once I learned about your story, it was uh, definitely one that I wanted to learn more about. So yeah, thank you for taking the time. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, like I said, thanks for having me. I'm uh, happy to do this and excited to be on the podcast. Right on, man. Well, uh, would you mind uh, just giving us a bit of your background, um, who you are and how you got into the avalanche industry and where you're at now? Yeah, you bet. So I started in the avalanche industry as a tail guide at Big Red Cats. I was about 19. And from there, started my way through the um, certification stream with the Canadian Ski Guide Association, as well as the Canadian Avalanche Association. Um, and then, uh, unfortunately, uh, a few years ago, I lost the majority of my vision to a mitochondrial disease. Um, so that uh, took me out of the uh, out of the guiding world. Um, however, that didn't prevent me from continuing to ski in the backcountry. And while skiing in the backcountry as a uh, as a visually impaired person, um, I started thinking about ways to get other blind and visually impaired people involved in backcountry skiing. And so that led me to form a not-for-profit organization called Braille Mountain Initiative. And this was sort of my uh, first uh, foray uh, into the avalanche industry as a visually impaired person. Through this program, uh, we teach the avalanche skills training level one to, uh, to blind and visually impaired people. Um, and then from there, I uh, got um, a little bit further back into the industry uh, by becoming a forecaster at Avalanche Canada. It's really an amazing story and, you know, kudos to you for staying on the, the path in the avalanche industry. I think that a, a lot of people would have written themselves off. So just to sort of clarify, you've, you've lost the majority of your vision. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So I've got no central vision. Um, however, I do uh, still have some remaining peripheral vision. Um, I often describe it to people by saying that, um, you know, I could walk into a room um, without bumping into anything, but might not necessarily know who's in the room or how many people are in the room. Okay. That's a good description. Man, that brings up so many questions, um, about how you travel through the mountains and everything. Uh, but I thought perhaps before we head down that road, um, I just wanted to, uh, kind of explore the background a little bit. So you're working, uh, for great Canadian heli skiing as well. Is that correct? Before you, uh, lost your vision? Yeah, you bet. I worked for um, a number of casting and heli inspirations, uh, including um, one in China, myself and a couple others founded a heli skiing operation in China. But most recently, I was working for Great Canadian Heli Skiing. Okay, amazing. That's, yeah, sounds like a real depth of experience there. And then had you done uh, some avalanche forecasting work prior to working for Avalanche Canada? Um, well, to some extent, we did a bit um, within that project. China, there was an access road to our casking tenure that had um, quite a bit of overhead hazard. There was about, I believe it was 54, 56 avalanche paths that would hit that road. However, um, it was a pretty, um, not quite sure how to describe it, but um, a fairly simple uh, forecasting program. It really just, we didn't have any telemetry or avalanche control or anything like that. It really just involved looking out the window and, and seeing what the weather was doing and making a simple uh, go, no, go call. Um, and then of course, you know, forecasting is um, a fairly important part of your, your AM guides meeting within the world of, of mechanized guiding, but certainly I certainly hadn't done any forecasting in the way that we do it uh, at Avalanche. 
Okay. Yeah, that totally makes sense. That sounds like a fascinating project in China, setting up heli skiing there. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was an amazing experience. Unreal. Okay. So then after you lost your sight, was there a bit of time when you um, had sort of stepped out of the mountains at all, or was it more or less you just continued on your path and the next season you're back um, exploring how you could ski and travel through the mountains? Yeah. So I had, uh, um, I lost my uh, vision in my right eye first, and that was in uh, late fall of 2018. And I continued to guide in the 2018-2019 season for Great Canadian uh, well being blind in one eye. My right eye is my bad eye. I've got um, very, very little remaining vision in that eye. And then it was in the summer of 2019 when I lost the vision in my left eye. So before the 2019-2020 season started, I did have a few months to kind of think about, um, you know, how I was going to do things and whatnot. And yeah, I definitely got right back on skis once I was able to, once the season got started. And when I first started skiing again, um, you know, as a, as a visually impaired person, it, it very much felt like learning how to ski again. Um, it was a very slow and nerve wracking process. There was no fluidity or confidence to it whatsoever. Um, but then, yeah, over the course of the season, it, it, you know, it got more and more comfortable and, um, you know, over time kind of started to feel more, more familiar. And I started to learn more about, you know, what terrain was really going to work best for me and, you know, some techniques that, uh, me and my, uh, my buddies would apply to kind of, you know, guide me through the mountains sort of, sort of thing. And, um, and another, it was a huge transition to go from, you know, being a guide to being guided. So yeah, there was a lot of learning to do over that first season, but by the end I was skiing more confidently and, um, yeah, and was ready to kind of start thinking about, you know, how to go from there to, you know, doing doing something in the industry again. Man, it's just unreal. So what's that sensation like when you're skiing? Um, you know, like I feel so many of us use so much from visual cues to adjust our balance and that sort of thing. And, and it's probably even uh, something we don't even think about, you know, so how, how does that go for you like is it 100% by feel through your feet or how does that work uh yeah it's it's a bit of both for sure because as i mentioned I, I do still have some remaining vision so um depending on the terrain i, I can take some cues um from the environment around me and from the but yeah it is a lot of through the feet and, and like you said we you know we generally take a lot of a lot of uh cues from the terrain around us to you know help us maintain our balance and stay centered over our skis and that sort of thing and that was definitely the, one of the biggest challenges off the start. Um, like I said, it, it felt like learning how to ski again. And that's, you know, the first time I was skiing in the backcountry. if anyone had seen us, they probably would have thought like this dude's never skied before. Um, Cause I was making, you know, big zigzagging turn across the slope and, you know, very unsteady on my feet, like getting too far in the back seat and too far forward. And, you know, kind of just awkwardly uh, wiggling around. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of learning to do to kind of figure out how to rely more, uh, you know, on my senses and, and feeling the weight distribution in the bottoms of my feet to kind of maintain centered on my skis, as well as there's a lot of uh, learning and adjustment to learn how to use that remaining uh, peripheral vision. You know, we instinctively, you know, when we're looking at, when we pick up something in our peripheral vision, for example, you know, that, that uses us to move our eyes or our head to to get whatever it is, you know, focused in our central vision. 
Um, and so, of course, if you have no central vision, you know, you, you still instinctively do the same thing. You'll see a, a tree in your peripheral or, you know, a hazard or whatever, or, um, you know, something moving. And then, you know, if you go, go to focus on it in the way that your, your body would, would instinctively tell you to do, now that object or hazard or whatever the case may be is now in your, you know, in my blind spot. Not, I can't see it whatsoever. So there was a lot of, and that's not just for skiing, right? That's just for, you know, simply walking around town, doing things in the house. Like, you know, there was a lot of training to do to kind of um, get rid of that instinct to look at things with my central vision. So that was, was quite a, a long exercise as well. That's incredible. Yeah, I guess just something catches your attention and you focus on it all of a sudden it's gone again that's uh must have taken quite a bit to to retrain your brain there yeah yeah absolutely um i i had a question for you about traveling through terrain on on the ascent so i can imagine that the descending is one one element but you know route finding and uh finding a sort of nice line for a skin track and that have you developed tricks um that have worked for you for navigating through terrain um, well, I, you know, first of all, first off, I, I kind of focused on just following someone else's skin track and, and that's a skill set in itself, you know, learning to feel, um, the uphill edge of the skin track with the outside edge of my uphill skill, you know, kind of started from there. And, um, you know, the only situation where I'm really getting out front and setting the skin track is really, you know, if I'm in, you know, very familiar terrain, or if someone's able to give me, um, you know, give me a little bit of direction, you know, something that I may be able to use as a landmark within my peripheral vision. And in order to do that, it would have to be something, you know, pretty, pretty obvious, like with a lot of contrast, maybe it's a very large rock feature, or if we're, you know, getting into that transitional zone from tree line to alpine where there's very few trees, you know, maybe if there's one large tree, I could use that as a landmark and there'd be enough contrast to pick that up in my peripheral. But for the most part, I'm not very often out front uh, setting the skin track. There's just yeah. not a lot of situations where I've, I've got enough vision to do that. Like I said, there are situations where I'm, you know, I'm skiing in terrain that's very familiar. And, you know, if I've, if I've done it a hundred times, I can, I can do it again now. And, you know, once I crest a particular bench, you know, I'll, that'll kind of keep in, okay, here's where I am in the terrain. That's the first of three benches or whatever. So if there's enough familiarity, then yeah, I can, you know, certain things I feel under my feet, certain things I see in my peripheral can kind of cue me back in where I am within the terrain. And then I can build from that to the next, you know, familiar spot that I'm going to feel or see. But like I said, that's, that'd be about the only circumstance where I'm out from. Okay. That totally makes sense. Yeah. I guess uh, what you said about even just following a established skin track that must've really taken some getting used to. And I suppose a certain amount of ski penetration is probably advantageous there too. Yeah, for sure. Like, you know, if you get up into the Alpine, everything's wind hammered and there's no skin track to feel, then I've typically got to be like right behind someone or yeah, we've got to use some other, some other technique of through the terrain. So if you're in that instance and you're right behind someone, are you navigating a, um, by sound as well as the peripheral? Um, maybe a bit, but like if I'm a couple speed lengths behind someone and you know, they're wearing you know, especially particularly if we're in the, you know, the tree line and then, you know, it's really quite easy to mistake people for trees, but if we're in the Alpine, then, you know, someone's a few meters in front of me and we're in a, you know, a totally white environment, then that person will really stand out in my peripheral and I'll be able to, to follow them fairly easily. 
Okay. Wow. Amazing. There's just so many things uh, to add to your decision-making for the day um, in an already pretty active decision-making environment. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just switching gears slightly, Tyson, back to the descending, I, I read on the Braille Mountain Initiative website, you were talking about how skiing and glaciated terrain was kind of ideal for um, visually impaired skiers. I was just wondering if you could talk to us about that. Yeah, for sure. So I, I kind of mentioned at the start there that there was a bit of learning to do to figure out what terrain works. And uh, initially, because I could see something in my peripheral vision, my initial thought was, okay, you know, like tree skiing is maybe going to be better. Like if I'm in, you know, nicely spaced, large old growth trees, then I can maybe like see trees, you know, in my peripheral and, and do something with that. And that ended up actually not really working. I just couldn't, couldn't see enough. And then of course there'd be smaller trees and all these other natural hazards and, um, you know, undulations in the terrain that I, I wouldn't be able to pick up. So that ended up not being a very great um, skiing experience. And so what ended up being, you know, the, the right thing was, um, yeah, like wide open terrain, a glacier being a great example, just having, you know, less of those smaller undulations in the terrain, a little bit more consistency to it you know, nothing to hit. And then as I mentioned, uh, you know, I can, you know, in that, that wide open white environment, I can often, you know, see my, my partners quasi, or at least easier um, in my peripheral when there's a lot of contrast between, you know, their body and, and the white snow. So um, that created the, the greatest opportunity for like an independent and familiar uh, skiing experience, you know, getting able, getting out into these these wide open spaces in the Alpine and, you know, having someone being able to say, yeah, you know, there's, there's nothing to hit for a hundred meters. Like we'll meet you down there sort of thing. And they can ski ahead and make a bit. And, you know, I can just, you know, turn where I want to turn ski naturally and freely and, you know, in a way that's more familiar and, you know, regroup with my buddies at the bottom and, and move on from there. And so, you know, as you mentioned, you saw, you know, something about that on the Braille Mountain Initiative website, because I think that's a fairly unique experience for someone who's a blind or visually impaired skier. It's, it's not often they're going to be able to have that level of freedom within the resort environment. Um, skiing in a resort is a uh, blind or visually impaired skier, um, depending on, you know, the resort's rules around that, you're guided by one or and two skiers, one in front, one behind, and you quite often would use a Bluetooth headset and they'll be, you know, they'll be kind of micromanaging you, right? You know, air turn there and, you know, slow down and, and all this. So it's not a very independent experience. And so that's something that I think that we can do um, with something unique that we can do at Braille Map Initiative uh, when we're skiing in the backcountry. We can create those opportunities. We can take people into that terrain where they can have that independent uh, experience. Wow, that's fascinating. So maybe almost a, a taste of um, skiing as it was prior to losing your vision then. Yeah, absolutely. Oh man, must be such a good feeling. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's incredible. And that's, that's really what led me to found Real Mountain Initiative was I thought was, you know, a really amazing feeling. And I, I wanted uh, other blind and visually impaired skiers to, to have that opportunity to have that, you know, independent skiing experience. So on the subject of the initiative and um, providing those skiing experiences, I was wondering if you could talk to us a bit about the Braille Mountain Initiative itself, and then also uh, some of these awesome looking trips that you've been hosting the last couple of years. Yeah, you bet. Um, so 
what uh, we've done a few sort of smaller trips, but really what we ideally want to do and what we're going to uh, continue to do um, is week-long trips uh, to a lodge. Sorcerer Lodge was where we had gone most recently, and we're, we're, we're booked in there for this coming April. Um, and so over the course of a week, we're able to, you know, teach people how to use the bindings, put their skins on, um, you know, teach them techniques to, you know, stay in the skin track, travel uphill, you know, get a fair bit of skiing in throughout the week, as well as we provide um, avalanche skills training level one. And so the idea is over the course of a week, we should be able to give people the knowledge and experience they need to feel comfortable um, continuing to do this, you know, with friends or family or people um, in their local area. And, um, and so, you know, the Backcountry Lodge is a, is, a, is a really great venue for that because it also provides, um, you know, ease of access to that wide open alpine terrain. So Sorcerer Lodge has been an incredible venue for that. You wake up at the lodge, you're on top of that moraine, you're overlooking um, a few uh, pretty decent sized glaciers, really just ideal blind skiing terrain. And um, as I mentioned, we, we went there last year for one of our trips and, and we're booked back in for this coming April for that reason. Oh, fantastic opportunity. Um, a question that kind of came to mind as you were talking about that, I was thinking like, do you, do people tend to come with some of their backcountry partners from home so that they're all on the same page when they go home and they're, they're doing this on their own, or does it tend to be the full group is made up of uh, folks that are visually impaired? Yeah. So uh, we generally don't have our blind or visually impaired participants bringing, um, folks from, from home or from their local ski hill. Um, we've got a, uh, a pretty, um, a pretty good uh, following of volunteers that have experience in the backcountry. Some of them have taught AST courses. Some of them have done some guiding, ski patrolling, whatever. So they're people that are really quite confident and capable uh, moving through the backcountry. And they're also generally capable of teaching the skills that need to be taught um, to our participants during this week. And so, um, yeah, that's that's what we think is is the best way forward in order to provide that uh, that education and you know make sure we provide a really a really solid experience. Pretty amazing, and it sounded like you guys have certified the first ever visually impaired folks in the AST one program. Hey, yeah, that's right. We ran two of those week long lodge programs last winter, and uh, yeah, so through that we've uh, we've now put. Um, I believe it was nine people, uh, nine blind or visually impaired people through the uh, AST level one program. And uh, we'll have a, another group going through that again this coming spring. Amazing. What a, what a thing that, what an avenue that you're opening up for folks here. It's great work. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it is. I noticed there that you're also conducting some summer trips as well. They do in, um, it sounded like you did a pretty cool section of the Great Divide Traverse. Is that right? Yep. Yep. You bet. So that was our first um, hiking trip. And uh, our group started at uh, Sunshine Village. And then they finished up near Mount Shark in the Stray Lakes area. And they did that over the course of five days. And uh, yeah, the feedback we got from our participants on that was, was awesome. Um, and we tried to incorporate some of the elements of our winter programs as well and you know some backcountry education as well as you know once again you know being nearly a week long you're able to uh, hopefully give people a, a sense of confidence um, within the backcountry so they feel empowered to 
you know, take on something like that with friends or family or whoever in their local area. Oh, that's fantastic. So if folks want to learn more about the Braille Mountain Initiative and uh, perhaps uh, help support it, where can they go to find out more? Uh, they can go to our website, which is BrailleMountainInitiative.com. Um, and there's, um, yeah, there's some trip reports, you know, photos, stories from our adventures and some additional details about, you know, what we do and why we do it, uh, as well as people can donate through our website. And then we sell uh, merchandise through there as well. So hats and t-shirts and that sort of thing with our logos on it with uh, all the funds going directly towards our backcountry programs for the blind and visually impaired. Awesome. Well, it's a great cause and we'll make sure that link is in the uh, show notes in the description here. Um, Cause yeah, sounds like people could really benefit from it and it's a great cause to support. So that's awesome. Well, that's awesome. Thank you. Um, I have a question for you about your uh, vertical challenge that you did at great Canadian high skiing there. Uh, it sounded like an awesome day. Uh, what was that all about? Yeah, that was a pretty exciting one. So that was, um, that was kind of a twofold thing that, uh, that gave Braille Mountain opportunity to get one of our participants out heli skiing. It had long been a dream of his, and he had contacted several heli skiing operators in the past, as well as other guide outfitters to, to get him into the backcountry and, um, was unfortunately uh, told no a number of times by these different operators um, due to uh, due to his vision loss. This is uh, Mark Bence. He's a uh, Paralympic athlete. He won a gold medals in downhill uh, in the late 80s. Um, and he has a degenerative condition. So unfortunately, he's lost nearly all of his vision. He's quite close to being uh, completely blind. So this was something that he had, had long wanted to do. It was a dream of his when he was a kid. He had enough vision to watch Warren Miller films and, you know, see what heli skiing was all about. And it was, yeah, something he had always dreamt of doing and thought would not be possible for him once he had learned of his condition and lost a substantial amount of his vision. So uh, great Canadian heli skiing um, had reached out and wanted to support what we were doing somehow. And um, the owner, uh, Greg Porter, had said, yeah, like, let's, you know, let's get out heli skiing and, uh, you know, somehow we'll, we'll make this a fundraiser and, you know, and, and you can, you know, bring another blind person out with you and we'll, we'll do this whole thing. And so together we came up with the idea of getting Mark out in the backcountry to fulfill a dream of his. Um, also kind of using their, you know, their newsletters and their social media outlets and stuff to drum up our support and awareness for what we do, as well as make it a fundraiser. Um, so me and Mark set a goal for ourselves. We decided we were going to try and ski uh 25,000 vertical feet in a day which um, I'm fairly certain would would likely be the most vertical a, a blind person has ever skied in a single day and, and and certainly within the text of of heli skiing um and so we set that 25,000 foot goal for ourselves and then uh got donors to you know pledge a certain amount um per vertical foot um or just simply make a flat donation towards what we call the great canadian heli skiing challenge that's unreal. That's a big day, regardless, let alone um, skiing blind. That's incredible. So how did it go? You know, we didn't quite hit our, our 25,000 feet. Um, we had some very challenging conditions. This was in, uh, this was on March 31st. And uh, over the two or three days prior to that, either way, there was very hot, sunny, freezing levels had gone up to, you know, I think it was 2,500 meters, 2,600 meters, something like that. Um, so we, and then on the day of the 31st, we had some weather rolling afternoons. We were kind of limited to getting in as much as we could, um, that morning, um, which we certainly did do, uh, me and Mark managed to ski, 
uh, with the help of a couple of their guides, some some friends, uh, Yarrow and Ken, we managed to do 12 runs on uh, Twilight Glacier, and I think it was an hour and 40 minutes, an hour and 45 minutes, something like that. So, yeah, we uh, we made a really, uh, made good use of the flying conditions that morning, cranked out a bunch of laughs on Twilight, and then moved on to a couple other runs before, unfortunately, the weather moved in, and we were no longer able to get back into that open alpine terrain, and everything sort of tree-line and below was, you know, pretty well cooked. So, yeah, 14 runs, and I think it was two and a half hours, and uh, I think that worked out to 23, 24,000 feet, so really quite close to our goal, and that also raised about $9,000 for Braille Mountain Initiative, which... Um, to put that in context, um, you know, that was more than enough to pay for our uh, summer hiking trip. So certainly a successful fundraiser and, and allowed us to, to do that hiking trip. That's fantastic. And a solid effort. That's uh, a lot of vertical to bang out in two hours. Good work. Yeah. And actually on that note, I should mention that, um, you know, in, in funding the, the summer hiking trip, one of our big sponsors, Valhalla Fear Outfitters, made a, a sizable contribution to that as well. They donated a, a Experiment in reach for us to raffle off, which, um, you know, yeah, went a long ways towards those trips as well. Fantastic. Good on them. Way to go. Right on. Uh, Tyson, that's fantastic. I'd love to uh, circle back now to your work with Avalanche Canada and, and learn a little bit about your role there and maybe some of the, the uh, tricks or workarounds that you've come up with to be able to uh, um, accomplish your tasks, you know, from day to day. Yeah, so I use what's called a screen reader to access um, information on my phone or on my computer. And essentially what it does is you, you memorize the keyboard and various different uh, shortcut keystrokes to navigate whatever's being displayed on the screen. And it'll turn any information that's on the screen into an audio format um, with some exceptions like uh, some very visual content, uh, graphs and things like that. The screen reader doesn't work with. Um, so... I've learned to use this technology to, you know, not only do all the things I need to do for Braille Mountain Initiative, but also to access the various different resources we use as avalanche forecasters to um, a forecast, whether it's the public bulletin or a forecast that you would do with any other um, role within the avalanche industry. You know, I no longer really thrive so much in the field as I do in the office due to this technology. I can access the same information that all of our other forecasters do. I access it in a different, as I mentioned, it's in an audio format instead of, you know, reading the, the information that's visually displayed on the screen. And then within that, there's a few different ways that I have to um, interpret the information and, and build a visual, uh, a mental image, sorry, of, you know, weather over a, a large region or the, the snowpack over a large region. So example would be, you know, if you were using uh, Spot which I'm sure a lot of your listeners are quite familiar with We're using spot WX. There's all these, you know, nice looking graphs and mediagrams that show you what these different weather parameters are forecast to over the given period of time. What I would do is I would open a version of that uh, forecast data that's in a table format. And with the screen reader, I can navigate through each of the different weather parameters that we'd be interested in. So wind speeds, you know, temperatures at different elevation, wind speeds at different elevation, um, cloud cover, things like that. And then you're on the horizontal axis and then on your vertical axis, you'd have time. So depending on your, your uh, weather model, it's an hour increments or three hour increments. And then of course with spot, that would be for a very, you know, specific point within this terrain. So I would go through that process 
um, you know, numerous different times with different weather models in different locations within the chain to build a mental map of weather over, you know, one of our large forecast regions. And then kind of do a, a very similar thing with snowpack and weather observations. That data can be available in a table format or in a, in a text-based format. Once again, I go through that sort of stuff, looking at, yeah, looking for that data for, you know, different locations within one of our forecasters to, you know, help build a uh, mental image of, um, of the snowpack. And, you know, then from there we combine those things and, and that's how we, you know, produce a, uh, an image of uh, the potential avalanche hazard in that region. So um, anyway, yeah, it's, you know, the, the steps we go through to produce the forecast are the same for me as they would be for any other forecaster. The only difference is the way in which I interpret the data used to produce that forecast. Yeah, that totally makes sense. You've just got to, um, I mean, I've seen your name on Avalanche Forecast for quite a while now and, and never really appreciated the sort of extra steps that you were taking there. So yeah, thanks for explaining that. Yeah, and another element of that would be, you know, in order for me to know, you know, where these different observations were taken within the terrain or, you know, where this particular, you know, spot forecast is within the terrain, um, you know, rather than looking at a map as, as many others could do to kind of put that all together. Um, I use lats and longs, so every one of the weather stations within within the province will have a lat long attached to it. Or, um, you know, likewise with the, the the spot WX forecast, that sort of thing would have a lat long attached to it. So I build a mental picture of where all these bits and pieces fit together within this terrain. Um, you referencing, you know, different lats and longs against each other, or and then combining that kind of like known significant features within the terrain, you know, different peaks, drainages, or you know, perhaps a, a town or something like that. So that's the other, the other part of it is, the other part of building that mental map is knowing where all these uh, resources and observations lie within the terrain. It sounds like you have to work quite a bit harder than somebody that's able to just say, look at an image of an avalanche observation, for example, or you've got to kind of build that mental map in your head of what the corresponding Latin long is and what that means for aspect and elevation, some of that important details. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's harder, but at the very least, it's different. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's fascinating, man. Uh, um, well, it certainly isn't evident in, in the output, I have to say that. I've certainly, you know, like I said, I've seen your name on the Avalanche forecast for a couple of years now, I guess it would be. Is that right? Um, no, uh, my first year was uh, was last year. So uh, this, uh, this season here, 2023, uh, will be my second with Avalanche Canada. Right on. And then do you still do some field work with them as well? Or uh, is it primarily office-based for your forecasting? Yep. I still do uh, some field work, um, you know, which is super important to me. I, I definitely, you know, appreciate the time being being out in the mountains and, and certainly miss that. So yeah, I do get time out in the field with Avcan. And uh, yeah, there's, you know, there's modifications there as well. Um, you know, for example, the, the various different tools we would use when taking a snow profile. You know, some of those are no longer necessarily applicable to me, but I've got others that now kind of take their place. So, uh, for example, you know, taking any of the uh, the measurements we would in the profile in terms of the depth of the snowpack or measuring, you know, where different uh, layers of concern lie in relation to each other or in relation to the, the top of the snowpack. I call that using a talking tape measure. Oh, wow. And in some cases, yeah. And yeah, I mean, interesting. I, I think that uh, 
a lot of people are kind of surprised or, or very curious when I throw that out there. But um, yeah, I mean, it looks like any other tape measure. The difference being is that when you pull the tape out, it out loud tells you how much tape you've pulled out of the measure. Um, and so I can use that to, to take all our measurements uh, within the snow profile. And then for measuring snowpack depth, what I do is toss my probe in. And if I'm just looking for, you know, a rough average of snowpack depth, I know that my probe is 320 centimeters long. I know that each segment is 40 centimeters. So I can just, you know, quite easily estimate the amount of the probe that's sticking service and subtract that from 320. Or if I would like a fairly precise measurement, toss the probe in, take the talking tape measure out, measure from the top down to the snow surface, and then subtract whatever the talking tape says from 320 to get a fairly precise measurement of the snowpack depth. So, you know, there's things like I've had to, you know, before applying to Avalanche Canada, you know, I went, went through all this stuff on my own and, and with the help of, you know, quite a few friends to come up with, you know, the various different workarounds that I would use to, um, you know, accomplish these tasks, these tasks, right? So I've, you know, talked about the screen reader and that's kind of, you know, I had to figure out a number of different workarounds there to access the data that would typically displayed in a very visual format. And then there was all this stuff in the field working with the talking tape measure and some other things to come up, uh, you know, workarounds and alternative strategies to accomplish the, the tasks of field work. And then, you know, within that, of, of course, you know, early on learning how to ski again and travel in the backcountry is the essential part of doing field work. So, you know, another component of, you know, working with friends and teaching myself how to get back to work. And then, um, you know, I think one that uh, I'm not sure if you're planning on bringing it up or not, but I'm sure lots of people, um, you know, have certainly been thinking about this since the start of this conversation. Um, you know, how do I participate in, in avalanche rescue, which is obviously a super, super important skill for anybody, you know, entering the backcountry. Um, and so I use a Emmett Pulse uh, transceiver, which is one of the few digital transceivers that has a true analog mode built into it. And just due to the simplicity of the, the buttons on it, you can actually navigate into that analog mode, assuming the transceiver has been set up correctly for this in the first place. But you can navigate into that analog mode without seeing the screen whatsoever. And once you're in an analog mode, um, you know, transceiver will function very much like an old F1 did. You're just dialing up and down through those ranges based on uh, the volume of the sound. Um, and from there, you can, uh, you know, you can find a target buried under the snow um, with uh, the same sort of level of accuracy as you could with a digital transceiver and looking at the screen. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, that was definitely going to be one of the questions. That's amazing. So you, you're running a, a true analog mode on the Pulse as opposed to like their mode two or whatever they call it, where you get the analog tones, but it's auto volume adjusting. So you'll go to the true analog where you adjust the volume yourself. And then that way you can um, determine what your uh, resolution essentially is of your search strip. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, you definitely need to be in um, what's referred to as mode three, like you referenced mode two there and the fact that it'll, you know, dial up and down to the ranges on its own. And so the issue there then becomes, you know, when the volume gets quieter, is it because you've moved further away? Or is it because the transceiver has bumped itself down a range? And without seeing the screen, you've got no way to know that. So yeah, you definitely have to be in mode three so that you're um, in complete control of what that transceiver is doing 
That's perfect. That sounds amazing. Uh, it sounds like it could work really well for you. I mean, um, do you, do you end up using the earpiece at all to, to enable that to be a bit easier or is that just straight out of the microphone or sorry, the speaker on the device is that that's enough sound? When experimenting with friends um, early on, you know, we did try everything from old F1s to the new Barry Box S, the Pulse, some other digital transceivers. And we did experiment with the headphones thing. And ultimately, um, I didn't think it made enough of a difference. And I think the time taken to get the headphones out and get that sorted, um, probably better off to just go without the headphones and, and get going. Yeah, fair point. Fair point. Wow. Fascinating. It sounds like you've had to find uh, specific, you know, um, workarounds for a lot of different uh, elements of our, our industry here and in our job. Yeah, definitely. And not just for, for myself in order to get back into the industry and find some work, but a lot of the stuff also had to do with, you know, how are we going to, you know, take other blind and visually impaired people into the backcountry in a, in a safe manner, as well as provide them with you know, the education that I'm tended to. So a lot of these workarounds were also so that um, we could, you know, facilitate a, a safe experience for others. Absolutely. So is that when you're just to kind of go down that rabbit hole briefly, you're uh, teaching the AST1 course through the Braille Mountain Initiative and uh, those transceiver searching techniques, is that something that you're passing on to students in that format? Yeah, you bet. So we have a fleet of Mammoth Pulses and that's what we provide to our participants and yeah, we, we definitely teach them how to use it um, in an analog mode. And so our, our sort of thought process with the AST level one is, you know, to ensure that they are, you know, when we give them that AST level one certificate, we want to ensure that they have the same uh, knowledge and the same sort of competency within the backcountry as anyone else who has taken that level one. So we don't change the expectation of our students. We just change delivery methods. Um, so everybody that's finishing an AST level one with Rail Mountain Initiative should be capable of and, and should have the same understandings of any other AST level one student, with some exceptions. Like, you know, we don't expect that they look around the train and they buy on their own, which is and isn't avalanche train, but we do expect that they understand what makes avalanche train avalanche train. They do understand what observations others might be able to make. And then most importantly for them, what questions do they need to ask of the other members of their group to be an integrated part of the decision-making process and to cue the sighted members of their group to make these essential observations while traveling through the backcountry? Right. Yeah. There's a huge element of uh, trust and communication there in a, in that partnership. Hey. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. That's amazing. Um, another question, um, Tyson, that came to mind just back to your Avalanche Canada work. I was wondering about how you go about crystal ID when you're doing a snow profile. Cause that's something that, you know, sighted people struggle with at the best of times. And obviously you don't have the advantage of being able to look through that loop. So are you going on resistance of the layers alone for um, weak layer identification and that sort of thing? Um, so yeah, that's a, um, that's a, a really challenging one. Um, you know, and, and resistance will definitely give you some indication. However, you know, large and consolidated facets will generally feel very much like, like surface core. Um, so resistance alone, um, you know, won't do it. And this is one where there's, you know, there's, there's limited workarounds to be done here. Um, so, you know, for myself, I, I feel like I have to go into any snow profile with perhaps a, 
um, a stronger understanding of what's gone on in terms of weather and and changes to snowpack prior to us being there, so that I can you know know that if I'm finding those unconsolidated layers at certain depth, I'll know you know I'll be able to reference that back. Okay, that's got to be you know this this layer this facet layer from our early January drought or whatever. Um, because yeah, I definitely you know. I don't really have a way to do that crystal idea. I have a way to, like I said, using resistance, find where there is, you know, those thin, really unconsolidated layers that are likely, you know, likely weak layers of concern. But then, you know, it's it's the background knowledge that's really going to tell me, you know, is that a layer of large unconsolidated facets? Is that a layer of surface ore? But also, um, you know, I think what's, uh, you know. In some situations, you know, does it really matter if you've determined the difference between large unconsolidated facets or large or or surface ore? You know, they, they both present a very similar. Um, they both have very similar implications to avalanche risk management. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. As a persistent form. Um, yeah, that's fascinating. So it sounds like doing your research is critical. Hey, like knowing the the history of the snowpack and the weather um, in in that set location. Yeah, you bet. So every every day, um, I've got a Word document open on my computer, and I'm taking detailed notes about the various observations that are coming in, and that's always stuff I can reference back to, you know. And within those notes, I take down a bunch of uh, data from you know remote weather stations that I think is that I think is a, that I think is critical and valuable. So anyway, I've always got an ongoing logging to reference back to 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 you know. Yeah, to have that information available. Yeah, awesome. That's that's probably something that we could all benefit from, really, in a in a forecasting workflow, especially for somebody such as yourself um, working for Avalanche Canada, forecasting for quite a diverse array of regions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a lot of information to manage. Amazing. Well, I, I appreciate you walking me through that because it's definitely something that I was thinking about um, in terms of how you work through your forecasting process. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's something that a lot of people are curious about because yeah, of course, you know, the way that a lot of this weather data is presented these days, it's, you know, it's, it's very visual and yeah. Absolutely. Something that came to mind as you were talking about crystal ID too, is, uh, you know, there's all these apps out there these days for say, I don't know, plant ID or bird ID or whatever. And you, you know, you can scan a photo of a, a, a plant or a mushroom or something, and it'll tell you the Latin name and, and what it is. And, you know, maybe a little crystal ID app would be something that somebody could develop if they're in um, one of these post-grad research programs that are out there. Yeah, totally. Actually, I had never thought of that, but yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I've, I've already talked about a number of different pieces of technology that I use to, to you know, perform the different tasks in my job. And, and that would certainly be one that, uh, yeah, I can see there, there'd be value for sure. And, and as well as teaching, um, Yes, level one to the blind and visionary people. I think that's a tool that they would appreciate as well. And I'm sure lots of sighted people would appreciate it too. Cause once again, you know, there's some real cut and dry things that are easy to identify when you can see them, like, you know, real big surface or for example, but there's sure a lot of mixed forms out there in the snowpack when you've got faceted rounds or rounding facets. And it's like, geez, what, what is that actually? So a little crystal ID app would help a lot of folks. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, I was wondering um, to bring it back to Braille Mountain Initiative here. You've done some fundraising initiatives in the past. You've got any of those planned for this coming season that people can can help support? 
Yeah, you bet. So in January, uh, we'll be doing our Climathon fundraiser, and this will be the, the third annual Climathon um, sponsored by Valhalla Pure Outfitters. And so how it works is, uh, you know, we get backcountry skiers from all over Canada. We've also had some people from the States participating and uh, the ice people log their meters and we create an online uh, platform, them, platform for them to do that, log how many meters they've climbed in the backcountry. This platform will, will rank people uh, based on the number of meters climbed. And we give uh, prizes to the person who's climbed the most meters, uh, the person who's raised the most funds and the idea being you get friends or family, coworkers, whatever the case may be to make a per meter pledge to your climbathon campaign. And then there's a third prize, which is a raffle and you get one entry to the raffle for every uh, $20 raised. And so that's been uh, a really big fundraiser for us uh, since the start. And the prizes are all provided by uh, Valhalla Pure Outfitters. So yeah, that's been a really successful fundraiser for us. And I think it's one that people, um, you know, enjoy participating in. It's, you know, it's a, it's a fun thing to compete against your friends and, um, you know, compete against others and, you know, other people around other skiers around North America. And, you know, people really do get into it. Uh, the first year, the person who won with the most meters climbed over the course of 40 days climbed 29,000 Wow, that's pretty darn good. Was his name Greg Hill? <laughs> no, but I've been trying to get Greg. Um, but uh, no, no, it wasn't. It was a, it was a guy named, uh, named Kenton uh, out of Revelstoke. Um, you know, and uh, that was also during COVID. So it was, you know, a lot of people had a lot of time to get out and climb. I think last year's winter didn't climb, climb quite that much. But anyway, there are people that are, that are putting a real serious effort into competing, uh, competing which, is, which is great. It drums up a lot of publicity for what we're doing. And so that fundraiser does a lot for us, raises good funds and also, you know, does a lot for awareness. Fantastic. Well, we make sure there's a link to the uh, website and the Climathon in the show notes and shout out to Valhalla for supporting that. That's fantastic. Yeah, that'd be great, man. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. Well, I do really appreciate you taking the time to have a chat, Tyson. It's a pretty fascinating uh, story and a, a huge, you know, respect for what you're doing and, and the workarounds that you're finding, I think it takes a lot of creativity. Um, so it's pretty amazing. And yeah, thank you for taking the time. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you as well. I appreciate you having me on the show. Awesome, man. Well, you take care and have a fantastic season. We look forward to uh, seeing what you're up to over the coming season here. Yeah, you bet. You as well, man. We'll be in touch. Thank you. Well, that was a great conversation about overcoming adversity and finding new ways to enjoy the mountains with Tyson Reddy. Thank you, Tyson, for joining me, and thank you all for listening. If you're interested in learning more about Tyson Reddy and the Braille Mountain Initiative, check out Tyson's website at brailmountaininitiative.com. We'll put the link in the show notes. There is also an excellent movie about Tyson at the Banff Mountain Film Festival this year, as well as a great story in Mountain Life magazine by Steve Shannon accompanied by Steve's excellent photography. Our friends at the Powder Cloud wrote a great story about the changes at Avalanche Canada. Check them out at thepowdercloud.com for that and other great content. Well, this podcast is all about sharing stories, knowledge, and news. So if you have suggestions or questions for future episodes, please contact us. You can do that on our website at theavalanchehour.com, where you can also find all our past episodes. You can also find the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at The Avalanche Hour Podcast. If you've been enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. 
And please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Those five-star reviews really help spread the podcast. If you want to help support this show, there is a new donate button on theavalanchehour.com. Our artwork is created by Mike T. Thanks, Mike. Head over to MikeT.com and check out some of Mike's work. Music for this episode was I Lost My Voice by my good buddy Gravy and used with permission from the artist. Gravy is a shredder, a snowboard guide, a forester, park ranger, and musician all around wicked dude from right here in Nelson, BC. Thanks, Gravy, for the tunes. We'll have a short chat coming up with Gravy to hear how a shredding snowboarder from Colorado ended up guiding cat skiing in Nelson, BC. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there.